Jcast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part one of our roundtable conversation on creative writing and public theology, which is a new Doctor of Ministry cohort at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. In the conversation, I'm joined by scholar and writer J. Cameron Carter and practical theologian and writer Shan Overton. J. Cameron Carter, Shan Overton, welcome to AIJCast. Good to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us about this new creative writing as public theology focus. Well, it is actually creative writing and public theology, and um, that's actually on purpose. Part of the question here is a vocational question about uh, what creative writing is and what public theology is. And so um, instead of making one like the other, I actually wanted students to have to think about uh, both of them and then to create interrelationships between the two based on their own studies and their own experiential work as writers, um, connecting with audiences um, out in the world. So part of this is, is about leaning into the question of vocation and asking what is public theology in the world we're living in today? Um, what, is, what do we need from it? Um, what does it demand of us? And what is a creative writer? Uh, in, with some of those same questions being asked. Um, and then what does it mean when you put the two together and you have a conversation as a cohort over several years not only thinking of it on your own in an isolated way, which is what a lot of writers end up doing, uh, particularly if there's no home for them because they're trying to do something different. Uh, And so the idea here is to have a cohort of conversation partners um, that include the faculty like Jay, myself, and others, and uh, craft of writing professors. We have several of those that uh, are gonna be joining us who will focus specifically on writing. But to have this ongoing conversation so that we have a richer, deeper sense of this for ourselves and potentially create a a larger conversation that extends way beyond Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. I mean, I'm grateful and honored to be a part of the faculty conversation and trying to provide some sort of faculty support for this endeavor and for the project. But I also wanted to just come back to this issue that Shan has put on the table about vocation mm. and how the and is working. And in some sense, the and is working, trying to like toggle between and like kind of establish a juxtaposition, right, between vocation in, in the world of theology or shall we say theological vocation perhaps ministerial vocation, but let's just say theological vocation for now, and the vocation of creative writing. Part of the challenge, at least on the side of theology, is that as I see it, as someone who from time to time has things to say about theology, (laughs) (laughs) as I see it, theology as a discipline, as a form of thought, I say that theology today is in a crisis. It's in a vocational crisis, it's in an epistemological crisis, a crisis of understanding what it is about. And part of what I got excited about, about being invited to this, is that the the vocation of 
the creative artist, the creative writer has something to say, to communicate, maybe a kind of transference of energy, if we could put it that way, Mm. back to those who work in the world of theology. Because theology, I think, it's been at a point of crisis, but it's at a point of severe crisis. And part of one of the reasons it's at a point of severe crisis is because it's been evacuated of the creative energy of the artist. Mm. We've sort of been stuck in how to reproduce the um, reigning institutional structures, the reigning thought structures, um, et cetera, et cetera. What the creative artist sort of brings to theology as a vocation is the energy to actually tap into another vein of its own potential vocation. Hmm. What would it mean to think about the craft and the practice of theology and ministry along the lines of the creative artist? Let's think about the poet as one type of creative artist. What poets do in crafting around words, right? The very work of the poetic at its deepest etymological uh, level, the poetic is the work of making, right? Constructing, building something that's different. What the creative artist does at least what I'm hoping happens in this project, why well, I got excited about it and hope that I might make a small contribution to this work that Shanna's dreamed up that's just brilliant, is to invite people on a theological side of vocation to sort of like kind of absorb in and receive by way of a certain kind of osmosis or transference of energy of what the creative artist does. And at root, the creative artist does just that. They create Right. They work with the given materials. It's like this class I'm doing on hip hop religion. I'll talk about the foundations of it. Right. And what did Grandmaster Flash do? Grandmaster Flash said that he studied the geometry of the circle and the wheel, which helped him understand how a record worked. And then he said the other thing that he did was he studied how sound works in the technology of sound. And he figured out how to take apart circuit boards. And he built a device that could take the break in a piece of music and extend the break so that the break became a long space zone itself for creation. Became its own canvas, as it were. That's right. That's what a poet does. That's what the creative artist does. And I'm hoping that in a project like this, that the theological world will rethink itself like artists do. Mm. That It makes me think of something that I've been playing with for some time now is the notion of artists, the parallel between artistry and, and prophecy, mm-hmm. the notion of the artist as prophet, this idea that one of the things that I am impressed with people who are in that creative space is the ability to imagine worlds into being. Or on the flip side, to hold up a mirror to the ugliness of the world as it is and to help us imagine a better world. Part of Where this is rooted for me is uh, in earlier work I did many, many years ago when I was getting a master's in literature and composition in English. And my master's thesis was on William Blake's work. And I was interested in how he articulated his aesthetic vision, both in terms of language and in terms of the visual, and how he was countering what he saw was a a terrible repetition in his society. There Mm. was a huge movement at that time to replicate the classical world in order to establish the English understanding of poetry and art. And he felt like the creative impulse from Christianity could help him to transform that into an inventive 
new vision um, to explore both the problems in the world. Remember, he was watching the French Revolution. He was watching the American Revolution at the time and writing about that. Um, he was critiquing Milton, um, who he saw as both a prophet and as someone limited. Mm, and mm -hmm. so I became fascinated with this tension between mimesis and invention and how different artists and theologians negotiate that space. Um, and I think in both spaces, there's room for both prophetic and pastoral and other voices. But as Jay has so well said, it's definitely, we're in a time of mimesis to some great degree. And I felt that as a student myself, uh, what I was you know, being asked to do at times, uh, I also see the struggle in our own students now in seminary and, and in English departments. I mean, you know, it, it's not just exclusively the domain of seminaries to be backward looking. I've <laughs> always been interested in the world that we want to create and then trying to figure out how to move into that space. And so this is kind of what I'm playing with as I think about this. And I, I did a class in one of our other demon programs recently that was in the parish risk program that Denise Thorpe is heading up. I focused a lot on Heideggerian phenomenology and being in the world. Um, there's a really wonderful film that we watched in parts and then had conversations with. And that film unpacks uh, some strands of being in time, uh, his great masterwork, and looks at the how an artist is in the world, the artist in his or her context in a total uh, holistic sort of way. And so, you know, that's also kind of filtering in because one of the things I find so fascinating about writing is that you have an opportunity to watch yourself do this creative act. So you're not just watching somebody else do it or watching a community do it, but you watch yourself create and you learn from that process, sort of from the inside out. Mm -hmm. There's something important in that moment. Um, it certainly has been for me as an academic and creative writer um, and as a teacher. And so I'm interested in getting students to pay attention to that at a granular detail, again, back to Blake, you know, seeing the world in a grain of sand um, and heaven in a wildflower. Mm. How do we do that? It's hard to do with all the distractions we have today. So this is an opportunity, I think, for our students to engage in that process at a deep level with some guidance from people who are pioneering it, like Jay and several others. What I find so interesting about what um, creative artists do, whether we're talking about the creative writer, in this case we're talking about creative writing, or whether we're talking about a painter, all of these kind of different aesthetic modes, we just invoked hip hop and maybe the musical traditions, is that their way to sort of like take up form, and it, it sort of does go to this question of mimesis or repetition, it's, they, they know how to take up form, but in a certain sense, like have a respect for form that can go in the direction of kind of like breaking form, right? To bend form, right? To make form do what sometimes it don't want to do. It's like when Sidney Bechet picks up the saxophone, right? Or Coltrane picks up the saxophone or, you know, Miles Davis or Jacques Courcille takes up the trumpet. They take up these quintessential European instruments 
and make those instruments do what those instruments weren't built to do, <laughs> right? Or yeah. you, you have um, someone take up the guitar, right? And then make it squeal. The, the instrument wasn't built for that, per se. I still got this hip hop thing in yeah. my head because I'm teaching it. It's sort of like Grandmaster Flash explaining how he came to discover what it meant to like kind of make the transference of, you know, between one record disc and another work. And he realized that, he said at one point, he realized the only way he could pull it off is he had to do something that everybody in the field told him you don't do. He had to take his fingers, put it on the turntable, and stop the record. He said um, the only way he could accomplish what he wanted to accomplish with the record um, and get the sound that he wanted and do what he wanted to do was to do what everybody told him. Dish jockeys, you don't do. You don't mm. put your fingers on the record. And yet, he said, I couldn't think of another way, so I did it. And this whole kind of like art form has <laughs> blossomed right? out yeah. of this, yeah. right? And I, I sort of think that that kind of protocol is the protocol of the artist. Yeah. It's both repeating right operating within the form but it's also a kind of breaking of form so as to like kind of reanimate form even as you're breaking form yeah right i mean this this is it seems to me what the creative artist does and what the creative writer does at the level of language jay cameron carter on aijcast we'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment but first a quick word as always i want to point you to the aijcast website aijcast.com And that's where you can find more information about our artists, including their news, events, and products. On this episode, I do want to give a special plug for the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary's Doctor of Ministry program, and especially the cohort that we're speaking about. This particular cohort will begin in June of 2021, and you can find out more information on their website, pts.edu slash dmin. And you can find out more information about this and so, 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 so much more on our website, AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our conversation with Jay Cameron Carter and Shan Overton. There is this element of this that we're talking about deconstruction and reconstruction, right? That there's mm-hmm. this notion of, I mean, you talked about guitar and I think about some of the masters like Hendrix who used mistakes like feedback to create this whole new sound palette that is now you don't have current rock and roll without that sound right and i'm wondering if we take that in the theological world and begin to talk about some of this transference of energy how that can then begin to look at some of the things that we are struggling with coming to terms with as a nation in terms of decentering whiteness white supremacy uh, those legacies that inhabit not only our, our society but also our church I've been thinking a lot um, in preparation for launching this cohort about um, breaking genres and breaking expectations. Mm, And mm -hmm. then how do we put things back together? What do we do with them? And um, so I've been doing a lot of reading and and thinking. And one of the voices that has come up for me um, in this process has been the voice of Diane Glancy, who is a Cherokee woman who is writes from the standpoint of both a Native American spirituality and a Methodist and fundamentalist. So she puts uh, all of those together in her work and most of which is uh, multi-genre and she's actually going to be teaching in the program, teaching a craft of writing course. Um, she's a really interesting writer and challenging 
uh, because she breaks expectations of what you think a fundamentalist is going to sound like, what you think a Methodist is going to sound like, and what you think a Native American writer is going to sound like. Hmm. Her way troubles the waters of our binary way of thinking about race, for instance, which hmm. I think is extremely important in the United States. Um, I think there is a, a huge need for racial justice that extends into the legacy of slavery and lynching and the Jim Crow laws. And in addition to that, there is a legacy of similar injustice in the Native American community. Sure. There are some of these voices that I'm interested in bringing into conversation um, around these issues um, that may, again, trouble those waters or at least get us to quit thinking in binary terms, which is part of our problem to begin with. Yes, I'm with you, Shan. This is one of the things that I think theology can learn from creative artists. Hmm. Let's put it this way. Theology needs to be subjected to a mission. It needs to be missionized. And we need to imagine, we might need to think about the creative artists as the missionaries, so to speak, to Christianity. And I'm saying it that way on purpose because Christianity has often thought of itself and, and with all kinds of dangerous and problematic consequences as the ones who bring a message of salvation. What I'm interested in is how the creative um, artists, creative writers, um, creative cultural workers bring something to Christianity. And you ask the question, like, what is it that kind of like theology sort of like gets out of this kind of partnership with the creative artists and creative writers. Part of what theology, and it seems to me Christianity needs to reckon with, is how its own current inability to reimagine social life. Mm. Its inability to put forward a kind of protocol and a practice of belonging that is itself a practice and a poetics of care. And so in many ways, what we are struggling with culturally is the fundamental bankruptcy of the procedures and the practices of being with each other and being with the earth that are in play right now. They are fundamentally bankrupt. And yet at the same time, the church has been unable, the Christian theology has been unable to mobilize its discourse, to immobilize an imagination, to speak into that crisis right there. And here comes the creative artist because, and this goes back to that point that Shan was just making, because they work in non-binaristic terms, because they work from the originary condition of multiplicity, they don't think individual and then how do we get to multiplicity? <laughs> the operation of difference isn't from the lone individual and then how do we all get along? Mm -hmm. The anoriginal condition, if I can forge a poetic word, not the original, the condition that exceeds originality as we think about it. The mm. anoriginal condition is multiplicity. And it seems to me that the creative artist taps into that, right? And that's how come you don't get the kind of binaristic kind of slipping and sliding, yeah. right? You get something that, that I call an operation that is both more and less than itself, mm -hmm. right? And for me, this is a poetics of care as a poetics of the social. Yeah, yeah. This is what I'm hoping that theology somehow can kind of receive a certain kind of energy transference from. This is what the creative artist understands. Mm. The creative artist has a practice, and that practice has a form of thought internal to it. All I'm trying to do is somehow 
cobble together some words that can try and catch up with that poetic practice, that creative artistry. Right. And this is what theology needs to learn. This is what the Christian church needs to learn. It's so much a case of, I mean, I guess I'm going to go back to Blake again because he was so formative in my own thinking. We're just going to go back between Grandmaster Flash and William Blake. <laughs> right, sample but, them. <laughs> well, but what, what I'm thinking here is his, his uh, idea of mental enslavement. And, mm. you know, part of what he was most concerned about at a deep level, and it was a spiritual level as well as an intellectual level, at an artistic level, is how we enslave ourselves mentally. My thought about this is that we are all enslaved by the colonial mindset, including the church. Mm -hmm. And so um, part of the reason that we don't lean into new uh, visions about how we engage the social imaginary is partly because we're enslaved by a particular social imaginary. That's right. That comes out of both a a colonial mindset and even, you know, before that, the imperialist mindset. Part of what I'm, I'm thinking about is, you know, how we begin to unhook those ways of thinking and some of the assumptions that um, go along with that um, and then move into some kind of uh, new space. And it's, a, it's scary. Um, there's a lot of resistance to it. You can see it all around us right now in so many forms. Um, and at the same time, I think that we've got a lot of people leading the way that are not necessarily considering themselves theologians. And I mean mm. that in terms of creative writers, but also like the Black Lives Matter movement um, that's articulating some things that need to be said and are doing it in some new ways that are inviting us into new spaces um, and new, uh, new ways of thinking, new ways of putting things together. And uh, I'm excited about that. And I feel like I want this program to help push in that direction, you know, uh, in terms of what we're doing. Yeah, I like that stuff on Blake. Um, I know enough Blake just to be dangerous in talking about him. <laughs> his, his poetry is like a kind of enactment of what I've like written here, an, an anti-colonial poetics of the imagination. I mean, Blake's kind of like poetry in many respects. It, it understood with the emergence of the world of enslavement, because he's living right in it. He is seeing the practices of the transatlantic slave trade, right? That stuff is shaping his poetic practice, and he is seeing how the enslavement practices are enslaving the master. Yes. Right? He is seeing the enslavement of whiteness as part and parcel of the violent enslavement against African persons, the brutality against the earth. You can almost read his poetics as the critique of white kind of practice, right? And, and white epistemology, that the outlook on the world that it encases, right? The performance of mastery. Mm. You gotta understand Blake as, as working out a creative practice that is itself the critique, right? Of the kind of European mindset that he finds himself in. Mm -hmm. He rejected both the Royal Academy of Arts, which, you know, he was a member of. He was made a member and had a show there. Mm -hmm. And then he sort of walked away from that and all that went with it, which included financial security. Mm. Um, because that, that was a road to sort of being respectable British, you know, or English, really, at that time, man. Wow. Um, and so he lived a life of scrabbling together mm -hmm. <laughs> his you know a living um as a printer and doing other kinds of work so that he could continue doing this work because he saw the ways in which the privilege of the royal academy would like 
put tentacles, I mean, it would imprison him. And I mean, he was, you know, people have considered him crazy, have considered him lots of things, but what he was was a guy who would not let the economic system dictate his work. Mm -hmm. And that had its problems, absolutely no doubt. But I mean, I think it's worth looking at this issue because I think there's a whole economic piece to it too mm, that absolutely. has to be addressed in some way. As I see it, it does connect with this question of, you know, how do we account for theology's inability, right? And especially if theology is like a kind of placeholder right now for Christianity in the world right now, it's inability to speak to these absolute crises. I mean, this kind of like, you know, effed up situation that we got in the world right now, why can't theology speak to it? And part of it I hear again, Shan, from what you said is what Blake understood. Blake understood on some level that the breaking of poetic form in order to like make it do something else also required the breaking of institutional form. Mm -hmm. The form of the institution yep. and, the, and the form of thought that goes with that institution must be both in some sense bent and tweaked and broken, right? A break has to be inserted between them. And so to engage in kind of creative work like you're describing so powerfully about Blake is that Blake understood as well that the current forms of institutionality could not sustain what he was about, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And it might be that we're at a moment where the current institutional forms of the Christian imaginary cannot house what needs to happen or they need to be broken. It's almost like a bone that, you know, grew into place wrong mm. and it needs to be broken and then reset, right? And what is it that the artist does? The artist is breaking that form, even at the level of institution. Mm. Language, let's be clear, is an institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, and if you don't believe that, why do we have grammar books? If you don't believe that, why do we have dictionaries? It's an institution, and what the poet does is break the institution in order to like kind of enters into form to break form. It's like Beyonce, mm -hmm. get in formation, right? But the <laughs> getting in formation from her song is like a kind of breaking of form to yeah. get back into form otherwise. J. Cameron Carter and Shan Overton on AIJCast. You can find out more information about this cohort, including application materials, financial aid, and scholarships online at pts.edu slash DMIN. On our next episode, part two of our roundtable conversation on creative writing and public theology. AIJ has been made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do what we do because of that support. So please just take a moment, go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the easy link that says support. And we love to interact with you on social media. We are there on a number of platforms where our handle is, of course, AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Marred Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the sometimes crass Al Mudif, who had this to say about why he's excited for the new Pauly Shore movie. I focused a lot on Heideggerian phenomenology. And I'm your host, Martha Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, create some beauty of your own, and remember that the world is not beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Justice and peace.